Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, Gary Wilson has won his third world ranking title. 15 months ago, he hadn't won any. And he first turned professional 18 years before that. So it's quite a run he's been on. Uh, Clive Everton once said, and naturally very wise, he said, the biggest gap for a player in terms of titles is from zero to one. Because once you've won one, you prove you can do it. We saw that with Ryan Day. He took a long time to win one, then started to win them regularly. And Gary Wilson is the same. And Gary Wilson and Judd Trump, of course, have split the home nations basically between themselves. Judd won the first two, Gary's won the second two. Uh, beat Martin O'Donnell 9-4 in Clandid. No, the final was no good, really. Let's be honest. I mean, we, we, we have high standards and we expect a lot. There were moments of drama, um, but there were a lot of mistakes. I think Martin, like a lot of people who find themselves in the first final, actually Gary Wilson was the same when he played Mark Selby out in China in 2015. They, they freed a little bit. It's hard to be quite as confident um, in that environment with all the, the expectation, the pressure on you. But that said, Martin O'Donnell had a great week, didn't he? He wasn't on the tour last season, and now he's been in a ranking final. And uh, certainly as he's in the first year of his two-year card. You know, he's done a lot of the work already in terms of staying on tour and avoiding this sort of revolving door of dropping on and off. So it was a great week. It was really well attended. Um, you know, terrific audiences. Obviously, some of the big names weren't there. Some of them lost early. It didn't make any difference. You know, the Welsh didn't have a great time, as they never really seemed to in that event. Um, but the crowds kept coming. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was a good week. It's a well-established tournament, the Welsh Open. And... Um, well, Gary Wilson is the winner, and we've had a lot of uh, correspondence. So let's start with Kelly Barker, who was there. She says, well done, Gary Wilson. A great achievement to win one event in a season, but to follow up on the Scottish win with the Welsh is a brilliant feat. And who knows what else he can achieve now. He's building up confidence. It was never a great final, and I felt sorry for Martin. Just couldn't really get anything going. and Didn't have that semi-final form in the final. I was at the first four days of the tournament and thoroughly enjoyed it. Clan Didno is a really lovely place to spend a few days as well as climbing the Great Orm, I saw some really good snooker. One of the highlights was seeing Luca Brussel play near his best again, and that clearance in the final frame against Graham Dot will live long in the memory. We actually saw Graham and his dad in the chip shop later, and he didn't seem downbeat, having just lost. Uh, no jokes here about being battered, please. We're, we're better than that. Uh, Kelly continues, I think he just admired Luca's play and knew there wasn't much more he could have done, which made O'Donnell's performance all the more astonishing to beat Luca in the quarterfinals. Word two on the young Welsh lads, I think a few of them have a great future ahead. Everyone's hyping up Liam Davis and I think he'll have his time, but for me Dylan Emery is the big pro young prospect. I rate him very highly and think a bit more time and experience on tour and he'll shoot at the rankings. On to the next now, should be a good week of Players' Championship action, bring it on. Well yes, I'm recording this in Telford, Kelly, thank you for the email. Um, so yes, we very much move on to the next event. Mark Williams, not that one, uh, on the Gary Wilson... Uh, Win, he said, thanks again for the great commentary as usual from you and the team. Thank you, Mark. Just a quick word on the latest Welsh Open winner, Gary Wilson. He's done well this week, but I'm disappointed with the negative comments he keeps coming out with. He usually focuses on the negativity with his game. It's getting a bit monotonous now. Then in his winning speech, he manages to come out with the comment that Edinburgh is rubbish. And this is this the way the winner of the Scottish Open should be treating the host city? He obviously hasn't spent any quality time in this great city, as it's a great night out with some lovely historic sites. 
Please focus on the positive side, Gary, and leave the negativity alone. Well, I think, Mark, I think that was a, a bit of a joke he was saying about he couldn't get anywhere to drink, which he could have done, by the way. I mean, I've, I've been to Edinburgh many times, and as you say, it's a beautiful city. Um, I actually thought he spoke quite well at the end. It, it wasn't a great match, as I say, and, and maybe there was there was sort of a, a risk that he was going to go on the negative a little bit, but he didn't, I don't think. He, he recognised the achievement of winning three tournaments. Um, he can be self-critical, but, you know, that's maybe part of a... Of a player's makeup, they sometimes, sometimes, some players need to be like that, I think. Um, and of course, everyone's different. Now, Alpha Bonzi has uh, got in touch with his customary three questions. He said, after a hot week in Clandidno with full crowds, despite the absence of several big names, my three quick ones are number one, this time last year, Martin O'Donnell was on the Q Tour. How hard was the journey from there to tonight's final? And how did he overcome the long, lonely nights? Yeah, I mean, he's spoken, uh, Alpha, about uh, some of those long, lonely nights, you know, some of the dark times. But he did say, um, you know, he's asked, did you consider packing it in? And he said, no. He said, I, th- I felt there was something special in there. And he did bring it out, of course. The win over Brussel, I thought, was very impressive. And actually, the semi-final, the way he fell, finished off against Elliot Slesser, you know, that century and the decider, that'll give him a lot of confidence. OK, the final wasn't great. He sort of felt closer in a way than the scoreline 9-4, but he just didn't take the chances, you know, that he had, and as simple as that. But in terms of the journey, I suppose you need a little bit of humility, actually, to be off the tour, to be playing in those Q Tour events. You're not suddenly at the main venues, the big venues. You're playing in snooker clubs, and that's some nice ones, and it's a, a brilliant thing, the Q Tour. But you're not part of the main tour. And, and Michael Holt said this as well. You've got to accept that and not be sort of feeling that, it's all beneath you. Because if you feel that way, you know, you, you won't be successful. So you just have to accept that's your circumstance. And they both kind of said that Holtie had a chat with him on Eurosport because they're both sort of in the same boat. He said, you know, you drop off the tour and you think it's the end of the world, but then you notice the world's still spinning and you just have to sort of cope with, you know, the new reality, I guess. And, and Martin coped with that very well. And he got back on. And as I say, now with all the points he's got just from this tournament, you know, he's going to stay on, you think, for, for, for the foreseeable. Uh, question two, Gary Wilson has also had a long, hard road to being now a three-time ranking event winner. What kept him going through his dark days when he had to take a second job as a Newcastle taxi driver to support his family? Yeah, but he, he got on, obviously it was pre-Barry Hearn, so there weren't as many events. He got on 2004, dropped off 2006, and was off for seven years. People sort of forget this. He didn't get back on until 2013. Um, I think he still played. Um, and maybe when he got back on, you know, it was because he'd had that time away and he, and he got a bit older, he sort of realised, OK, I've got to work at this. I've really got to work hard. And he has done. And you, whenever you sit at a tournament, you go through the practice room, Gary Wilson is invariably on it, unless he's been knocked out, of course. Um, but he is a hard worker. He's put a lot of work in. I think that the sort of grounding he had, and he mentioned Stan Chambers last night after the final. Now, Stan Chambers was the sort of Malcolm Thorne of the North East. He was that grassroots guy who gave a lot of kids a lot of opportunities and just organised tournaments, gave them a structure, coaching, competitions, all that stuff. And I think he's come through that, Gary, and, and understands that, you know, what snooker's kind of about from a competitive standpoint. And, you know, he's, he, he kind of knows how good he is. He was world junior champion and he wanted to make sure when he got back on that he gave it a good go. And, and my word, he has done because now it's up to 12 in the world and, you know, you've got to look at the world championship and say he'll be a threat there. Because he's one of the form players of the season. There's only Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump, other than him, who've won multiple ranking events this season. Obviously, uh, Mark Allen has won the Champion of Champions in the shootout. But, you know, that Champion of Champions at the moment, there's not many players in it, are there? <laughs> I think there's only four, actually. I think it's O'Sullivan, Trump, Wilson and, and Allen at the moment. Obviously, it'll fill up as time goes on. But uh, So I think that's the answer to that question. Number three, what, from Alpha, this is what quality qualities does it take to win a Home Nations trophy? With the 96 players starting out, several tables in operation in the first few days and moving day Thursday, is it a surprise Wilson's won three and several world champions only have won? Thanks for the podcast and commentary and gassed for the Players' Championship. Yeah, I mean, the Home Nations, obviously, those best of sevens, you know, there's a number of things about that. It's not so much the length of matches. It's You're never quite sure when you're going to be playing, I don't think. It can be any time of day. Some days you have to play twice. You have to really focus and, 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 and sort of concentrate and and not let the schedule get you down. I know a lot of people don't like going on late, obviously. Some people don't like going on early. Um, if you can get through the best of sevens to the quarterfinals, then it's kind of anyone's then. Um, but, yeah, 
the, it, it's true that not all the sort of top players have done that well in them. But having said that, you know, Judd Trump's won quite a few. Mark Allen, Neil Robertson, you know, so it kind of is as well. Mark Selby, then multiple winners. Gary Wilson now has won three. It kind of is the in a way the the usual suspects there. Now we have here Mark. Uh, no, who's this? Simon. Simon Monk, yes. Uh, as in accordance with other listeners, keep up the great work. My only, these are my second email, as I keep meaning to send you a mail, then I forget. Anyway, I'm pleased to see Martin O'Donnell perform so well at the Welsh Open. I've always liked Martin, as he comes across as a really nice lad, and I would imagine he's one of those guys who no one has a bad word to say about. His success this week gives hope to lesser-ranked players who are also talented, but have not achieved the results they may have hoped for. I see he's 19th on the one-year list, which of course gives him some insurance going into next year, which is the second year of his latest iteration as a professional. I do hope he can chip away some further victories and cement himself in the top 32. You only need to look at Chris Wakelin, who following some success has maintained form and solidified a high ranking, and Jordan Brown another one. I accept the final of the Welsh was a little scrappy, but understandably in my eyes, as there was so much at stake for these players. It was refreshing to see Gary win his third ranking event, as he has alluded to his tendency to do well in a tournament and then go missing for a while. This win backs up some recent good showings and to have won three ranking events elevates him in status for sure as there are not copious amounts of three-time ranking event winners in the history of the game. Well, actually, uh, Simon is the 29th, so it's kind of quite a few, but yeah, it's, um, it's still relatively elite. Simon continues, he seems to have improved or certainly become more aware of the need to try and not get as down on himself as he's done previously. He's very on point when interviewed and does not fudge his words when asked about his form. Top-level performers who consistently play at their peak are a rare breed and snooker is such a tough mental challenge as form can be so volatile and evaporate for no obvious reason. I will end now and wish you well, sir. Look forward to your podcast review of this latest event. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you're right about the, the sort of the, the, the achievement. I think Gary did um, recognise that, the sort of scale of that achievement himself. As I said, I, I think, I thought he actually spoke well um, after the final because... You know, it could have been, it could have been a downer just because it wasn't the high standard. But he recognised uh, how well he'd done. Um, Phil Spivey, I write this just before the final session of the final between Wilson and O'Donnell. It's been a great week, even though Sullivan and Trump didn't enter. There were lots of other early shocks. It's a testament to the strength and depth of the tour that the quality on show has been so good. Here's a question which may have no real answer: Why is it the Northern Ireland Open and not called the Northern Irish Open? like the Welsh, Scottish and English Opens. Not important, I'm just curious. I don't really know the answer to that. I suspect, I mean, obviously you have Northern Ireland, you have the Republic of Ireland, as we know, it's <laughs> a certain contested history, I think it's fair to say, about, about that whole island. Um, so it may be that, uh, it may have something to do with that, I don't know. Um, I suspect it probably is in that area. Uh, but like you say, it doesn't really matter. Now, Phil has also supplied here, and this has been the latest sensation. There's been many on the on the podcast, but uh, he says a listener wrote in last time with bread-based snooker puns. It inspired me to add a few of my own. Some of them don't really work, but I like them anyway. <laughs> well, we'll read them out then. In that case, so we have these. Are, I think these are quite good. We've got Deshishlava Boshalofa, okay, Peter Ebden, Mick Slice, Dingjun Wheat. Steve Hovis, maybe that one doesn't work, but anyway. Dino Grain, so these are bread-based snooker players. And it has to be said, Phil, uh, you're not alone in coming up with some, because uh, we also have here Liam McMullen. He says, he's slowly becoming my favourite feature on the podcast. It reminds me of when TalkSport did a thing a while ago. They were doing football player names mixed with biscuits. Top stuff indeed. Hats off to last week's correspondent. He kept the ball rolling with a new topic of bread. I picked up the bat on. I don't know whether that's a pun or not. Uh, and run with it. Anyway, these, so these are some more uh, we've, more bread-based snooker players. We've, and we've got Mark Kingsmill. Steve Hovis, again, it didn't work the first time for me, but anyway, it's come back. Bready Charlton. <laughs> Bready Charlton. Hot Cross Ben Wollaston. Rye and Day. Uh, Scon Higgins. Sour Doni Drago. Takes a bit of work, that one. This this takes a lot of work, this next one. Chapati Tian Peng Fei. Terry Barra Brithis. <laughs> Can't even say that one. Panatoni Mio. Quite like that one. And again, Peter Ebden. And then for no reason at all, Liam has added some snooker players based on alcohol. Okay, so we've got Matt Seltzer, Dominic Ayle, Martini Gould, 
and Heineken Doherty. And any more of those, of course, will take anything on here, as you probably already noticed. Uh, now, I think I think there's been an, I think someone else has written in with some. Uh, well, we'll get to that maybe later. Uh, just bear with me a second. Uh, well, why don't we why don't we go back to uh, uh, banal meetings with snooker players? Because I think we've dealt with mo- most of the key issues already. He says, uh, this is Nathan, Nathan Brown. He says, I love to hear stories of uneventful snooker player meetings, so I thought I'd share my own. Recently, I attended the World Grand Prix in Leicester. This was my first ever event, and I had a thoroughly enjoyable day. Between the two sessions, I fancied a bite to eat and took the cold walk into town and decided on a Five Guys. I made my order and sat down. Uh, There is me, a Chinese man, and son in the restaurant, and that's it. To my surprise, this man had a cute case with him, and I realised it was Wu Yuzha having dinner with his father after his loss to Ali Carter just a few hours earlier. I did not wish to borrow them, but we did walk out at the same time. Bother them, I should be, I think. I did not wish to bother them, but we did walk out at the same time. And as he held the door for me, I offered him a well-played earlier and better luck next time before walking back to the arena to enjoy some more snooker. That's about, yes, that's, that's about as much of an interaction as we want, really. You, you know, he's held the door, you've offered nice words. Whether he got what you were saying or not, we don't know, but uh, thank you for that. Mark Wright has uh, got another one here. He says, on the subject of banal meetings with snooker players, may I take the liberty of changing that subject to incredible meetings with snooker players? Okay, so this is up in the ante a little bit. He says, I'm a long-time lover of the great game, so bought a selection of tickets for the 2015 World Championship. I managed to get two pairs of tickets for consecutive evening matches, so I convinced my girlfriend, Deb, to come along on the promise of a nice hotel and a meal for two. We watched Stuart Bingham win his match and set off to a very nice Italian restaurant in town. We were shown to a very nice table next to a large round table with reserved signs all over it. As I sat down, I had a very strange feeling that the large table would be occupied by some interesting people. It was in a nice position and slightly secluded. Sure enough, I just started on my poppadoms and who should appear. Let me list them in no particular order. Jill Saxby, 1985, Miss Great Britain. Willie Thorne, Mr. 147. Ken Doherty, 1997 world champion. Dennis Taylor, 1985 world champion. John Virgo, where's the onion bhaji going? Oh, and some bloke, there was a bit of a hanger-on called Stephen Hendry. Can you imagine? Snooker royalty sat two metres away. I resisted the massive temptation to ask for selfies, etc., as I thought it more respectful to leave them in peace to enjoy their evening. That didn't stop me ignoring my girlfriend all night and shamelessly eavesdropping on their conversation, of course. Poor old Deb. She's got along there in, in good faith. Uh, anyway, he says, I can tell you it went as you would expect. Virgo got his head down and enjoyed his meal. Willie was regarding the table with amusing tales and anecdotes. Dennis told some awful jokes. Ken supplied the laughter track. Stephen amazingly kept very much in the background and never even had a table place. He just sat behind Ken and enjoyed the company. I remember that Willie remarked to Dennis that Jill, his partner, was Miss Great Britain in 1985. So they, they shared that anniversary year. What a night. We left before them. And as I got up, Ken gave me a nod and a smile. I took that as an acknowledgement of me recognising them but leaving them alone. I was very tempted to approach Jill Saxby and ask for a, a selfie and ignore the three world champions and two of my favourite TV partners just for fun. I didn't, of course. On leaving the restaurant, I excitedly said to my girlfriend, wow, what an incredible evening. Her reply was, yes, my chicken tikka masala was delicious. <laughs> thank you for the best podcast on the planet. Well, thank you, Mark. And that kind of does fit in because you didn't actually speak to anybody. So I think that does count as a banal meeting. I, I think that might be Akbar's in Sheffield because I've been there with Joe Johnson and, and Joe, uh, he knows the owners. <laughs> so he, he, you know, he can kind of get uh, get a nice table like that and, uh, and, and uh, he quite often invites various people along. We'll take a break from that. For a, we'll go back to the Saudi uh, tournament. Uh, we've had some things on here. Rob O'Connor, do you think the prize money for the Saudi tournament was deliberately kept a bit lower than for the World Championship to pres- preserve its prestige? Well, we don't know what the prize money is yet. Um, the, the total prize fund is, is lower for the ranking event, but we don't actually know. It's not been announced. I'll be assuming talking about the ranking event, uh, Rob. It's not been announced uh, what the actual first prize is, but I suspect it probably it will either be lower or they'll have to raise the World Championship. I think the World Championship probably will still be the biggest uh, in fact, actually, there is a banal meeting here that he's got himself. He said, in 1999, when I was working as a night watchman in a well-known Dublin cafe on Grafton Street, I opened the door to let the cleaners out to clean the windows. The street, as you might expect, at 5am was pretty quiet. That was until the small figure of Ken Doherty appeared from the shadows. Hello, Ken, I said. How are you? He replied, as he continued on his journey in the direction of Ranala. Well, there we are. There's a little sighting of Ken, I suppose, in Dublin. That's not unusual. Uh, Craig Dooley, he's also on the sat on the old Saudi train uh not train subject uh essential sick of talking about this and i know your livelihood is at stake which makes it a much different argument for you than i that being said i don't think growing the game and more money justifies the saudi thing 
Looking at the world today, it's clear that capitalism, free markets and morality do not go hand in hand. Without proper governance, it is therefore up to individuals' business to show some moral courage about how they go about things. As for needing to grow the game, etc., from a casual fan perspective, it seems like the game is in a pretty damn good place. Why not work on, on improving the club scene, bringing back pot black and making it really thrive over here? I don't really, just on that, I don't see how bringing back pot black is going to make any difference. And also, you know, it's interesting, Graham Dot was talking about this earlier in the week. The prize money actually is a massive thing. Um, that's why the players are supporting this event because, you know, the, the, for example, we've just been at Home Nations. You need to win a few matches in that to make any meaningful money, you know. It's, it's a few thousand here and there in the early rounds, whereas this will be much bigger. Uh, anyway, uh, Craig continues, The eternal search for growth at whatever cost is probably why the planet and inequality is in the state that it is. If it was 1935 and Germany offered big bucks to host a tournament, would it be right for us to go there for financial reasons? Probably not. I think you're a more reasonable, intelligent and ethical person than I am, so I'm not going to go. I wouldn't say that, Craig, at all. Uh, more a reflection on how good people get dragged into frankly st stinky situations. I'd almost certainly be the same if I was in your seat. In other news, it's a beautiful day. Please don't hate me. Well, that's not going to happen, is it? Um, it's just a perfectly reasonable email. No, I mean, listen, I would not, for example, um, countenance a torment in Russia right now because we are effectively at war with Russia over Ukraine. We're not at war with Saudi Arabia. Our government trade with them, businesses are allowed to trade with them, and sport is allowed to go there. Now, we've got a general election probably later in the year. The Labour Party look like they're probably going to win it. What's their stance going to be to Saudi? Are they going to change that stance? Are they going to be more strict? Maybe then there'll be a situation where sport won't um, be so um, welcome there or, or be able to go there or business be able to trade with them. I'd, I'd be surprised, to be honest, but, it, but you know, it's, it's possible that they may change the stance, but at the moment... The political leadership of our country is perfectly fine with it. Uh, more than that, you know, they sell <laughs> they sell them, you know, billions of pounds worth of weapons every year. Um, so, but that, as I say, that that situation could change, but it doesn't mean we should have a torment anywhere. As I say, I don't, you know, I don't think anyone would be pictured up in Moscow anytime soon. Um, we do have another email, I think, about Saudi Arabia. Uh, a lot of people will say, you could have sorted this out, you know, before you started recording. But where's the fun in that? Here we are, Jack Carrington. OK, thank you, Jack. With the new event in Saudi a couple of weeks away, the golden ball and the possibility of 167, what would happen if someone made a 155? Would the golden ball still come on the table and a player made a 175? If someone made a 16 red 147, what would happen? Is there any news on where the golden ball will actually be on the table? Uh, no, not there isn't any news. I mean, there was discussion that they were going to put the the, 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 the latest I heard, they were just talking about this, so I don't know how official it is, but they were going to put the golden ball at the start of the frame on the bulk cushion, effectively level with the spots. Slightly impedes the break off, but anyway. And it's going to stay there until such time as it's not possible to make a 147. So obviously if someone pots a red and a pink, we take the ball off the table. Um, but of course, <laughs> the, the danger with it being on the table is someone could hit it, someone could knock it in. Can you snooker behind it? What is that? What would the foul be? All, all of that. This is the danger when you start messing about. And I spoke to a referee about this who agreed with what I said on the podcast initially. He, he said, you have to actually have it codified in the ru snooker rules. Because there's lots of things that could happen that no one's thought about. If you look at the shootout, that's a different form of the game. That There is a section in the official WPSA snooker rules on the shootout. Same with the six reds. So all the possibilities there are covered in the rules. There is nothing in the rules about a golden ball and a one six seven break. You mentioned that you know the, the, the possibility of a free ball and, the, and the, all of that. No one's thought of any of that. We don't yet know um, exactly you know where the golden ball would be placed if someone made a maximum. Here's the thing, okay? It's entirely possible, entirely possible that Snooker's two hundredth maximum could be a one six seven, or or in theory that's what they're going to call it. Whether it would actually be known as that, I don't know. Which is kind of well, crazy in a way. Um, so, like I say, I think it's slightly dangerous when you start messing about. If it's a gimmick for money, that's different. If it's just pop that ball, you get 50 grand, fine. That's jeopardy. That's, that's entertainment. Um, but to start giving it points value, it's just a bit weird, I think. Uh, Jack continues, I know I'm a bit late to the party on this one, but snooker dreams. I've had a dream fairly recently that Judd Trump made a 147 and that every colour was on a cushion, even the final black. Not sure how it ended up there after it had been potted 15 times already, but he potted it nevertheless. 
I also had a dream last year. Now, this is about as niche as it gets, OK, Jack? I also had a dream last year about the World Championship final and that Tessa Davidson, the current women's world number 10, beat Mark Selby 18-16. But I couldn't remember any more about the dream. Before we think I'm a complete lunatic, this did occur at the same time as a women's event, which I'd seen some of the results for early in the day. So I think it was linked to that in some way. Well, I don't think Tessa... I mean, Tessa's not going to be in the World Championship this year, so that, that scenario can't play out. But, um, yeah, I'm more interested in the, in the whole business of the balls on the cushions, uh, uh, Jack. I don't know what that signifies, but anyway. It continues, in the last podcast, there was an email from Adam about Mark Williams ripping the cloth at the Crucible. I saw footage of this recently, but it wasn't Mark Williams. It was Ronnie who did it against Stephen Lee in the 2002 quarterfinal. I believe it was the second session, but could be wrong. Ronnie missed the blue, threw his cue in the air, it landed on the table, ripped the cloth, and the table apparently was recovered after the session. There's a short clip of this on YouTube if you want to search for it. Thanks for the multiple podcasts. Each week it's still the best snooker podcast out there. It didn't win an award though, did it? But thank you anyway for uh, for that. Yeah, I don't remember that at all, but I'm sure you're right. I'm pretty sure I just saw Ronnie uh, running past the hotel, actually. I mean, it looked like him anyway, I and mean, that's the sort of thing he does. But uh, having said that, it doesn't add a lot to, uh, well, to anything, really. Joe in Hungary... Uh, thanks for the great and frequent podcast and for the valuable insights you bring. So I have some points to make and would appreciate any thoughts you had. Why is the German Masters best of nine, but has the same prize structure as a best of seven? Usually the longer frame matches have a higher prize fund, like the Women Open. Well, I think with regards to that, I mean, the Chinese events have their own prize structure because they have their own sort of promotion and, 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 and they're just different. Um, often the money is put up by, by the Chinese promoters. He says, do you think the newly announced tournaments such as the Jiang Grand Prix and Saudi Masters, as well as the existing Chinese ranking events, now devalue the home nations? Sounds silly to say, but 80,000 may not be enough to tempt the top stars, as shown by players such as Ronnie Trump Robertson missing some tournaments this year. In other sports, it's very common for top stars to prioritise their schedules. And actually, I think Ronnie is ahead of the curve again on this one. He receives a lot of criticism with regards to choosing the lucrative events, but if he wants to maintain his ranking as easily as possible... Which I think is totally understandable. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it may, you may be right. Um, you know, the more tournaments, the more choice for the top players. And it may be that home nations events are the ones they miss. But we've just been at the Welsh Open. It was a huge success, um, despite a few big names missing. You know, snooker has to, I think, has to sort of, um, I'm going to say play to its strengths. But it has to understand that the, the real star is the game itself. And we've seen this week new new players or lesser known players come to the fore. Um, and quite entertainingly so. And I think we have to have a bit more confidence in in the players actually down the tour that they can entertain. It's not always about... You can't just rely on sort of three or four people. So you may be right, but it doesn't mean there won't be good events. Uh, Joe continues... If there is a fourth major, should it be the Shanghai Masters? Top 16 field, excellent venue and city, big prize fund, prestigious winners for the most part, certainly more deserving than Saudi Arabia. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I always thought the China Open should have been a major. That had more prize money than anything other than the World Championship. Now, that's disappeared from the tour. Um, but this whole thing about majors, you know, it's it's really just opinion. It's, it's nothing officially written down to say something's a major. We have historic tournaments. Obviously, the World Championship speaks for itself. The UK Masters are historic tournaments, so they're regarded as majors. But you can call anything a major, really. And the Saudi Arabian event is going to be massive money. So for the players, it'll be it'll be their second biggest event for sure. It just will be. Joe concludes, finally, I was curious what happened to the Indian Open. I searched online, but thought you may have some insight on it. It seems strange it abruptly ended. I'm sure Matt Selt is eager to defend his title. Same goes for Gibraltar. I think Gibraltar was a contractual thing. India, obviously, 2019, we know that 2020, there was uh, COVID. And that, that you would imagine that was part of it. But I don't know um, sort of contractually whether that's, you know, they're talking again. I mean, it was... It was on there for a few years. It's quite a popular event, I think. Again, it was one some of the top players skipped. Um, but I just don't know is the answer. But it'd be nice to think that some of these countries you know, will come around again, for sure. Fionn Lynch, I have a couple of questions for you. The first is with commentary. Sometimes when neither commentator uh, is giving insight and the mics aren't off, we can hear a slight murmur as if someone is speaking in the background. Is this the two commentators talking to one another or is there a producer-director asking you to talk about a specific topic? Um, well, Fionn, it may be the producer or director, they, they won't, wouldn't be telling us what to say, but they might be giving us some instructions about 
maybe what's happening during the break, because on Discovery Plus now we have to talk during the ad, ad breaks, or just some general information. So you shouldn't really hear that, but I know sometimes it does bleed through. Uh, my second question is to do with the ranking list. If a player has a two-year card and gets into the top 64 in the first year on tour, does player 65 also keep their tour card, or is an extra one freed up for a new player? Now, I'm going to read that again. If a player with a two-year tour card gets into the top 64 in their first year on tour, does player 65 also keep the tour card, or is an extra one freed up for a new player? I think... I think I'm right in saying that number 65 would keep it. I might, may not be right though. I, don't, I would have to double check that with the, with the authorities. Um, because that's going to happen, isn't it, with Martin O'Donnell? Um, in fact, it happened last year with C. Joel Wee, but the complication there was, of course, a few players got banned. So they actually went down the list anyway. Finally, I have a story of a time I thought I met a snooker player, but didn't. So here we go. So this is, this is now, we've gone from banal meetings with snooker players to banal meetings with people who look a bit like snooker players. And this is, this is all gold as far as I'm concerned. He says, uh, I'm, multiple times when I was shopping in my local Tesco, I saw a man who I thought was Martin Gould. It turns out it wasn't him, but another man. The fact we live in different countries probably should have given that away. <laughs> well, again, if anyone has think, thinks they've seen a snooker player but hasn't, clearly that's, uh, you know, that's, that's absolute gold. Nick Evans, he said, I still could not survive without your podcast. Although as I cheered on local lad Ricky Walden, impressively beating the out of form Neil Robertson in the Welsh, I was reflecting on the interesting recent email about snooker gods, which reminded me of a list I'd started of notably niche cliches often used in commentary, including... OK, so these are the cliches Nick has identified. All kinds of bother. One foot in the next round. Definitely missable. Where's the cue ball going? At least those are understandable. These final few would make basically no sense to young or new viewers. OK? He's Granite, Top Draw, and of course Shredsville. Nevertheless, despite your active participation in the proliferation of these, I thank you again for the podcast on your excellent commentating. Yeah, I mean, of course, Shredsville is, is, is a phrase Jimmy has, uh, Jimmy White has pioneered, if that's the word, um, to describe people who are in shreds, <laughs> basically, and, uh, you know, gone. On the sort of subject, uh, Johnny Metcalf, he says, uh, great work on the podcast. Has anyone else ever called out the misuse of the phrase push the boat out by certain commentators? It's most commonly trotted out when a player He's taking on a risky long pot. Push the boat out means to be lavish in one spending or celebrations. You might push the boat out of your local pub when choosing that overpriced crap beer. You might also push the boat out when choosing to go all-inclusive in Crete, but surely not when playing a snooker shot. Do they mean chance your arm, which means undertake something, although it may be dangerous or unsuccessful? This seems to have been going on for decades, completely unchallenged. Or go out on a limb or push the boat out and suggest it was started by John Virgo. <laughs> J- J- poor old JV's been absolutely hammered there, hasn't he? Uh, he says, it seems to spread like a disease into the lexicon of other snooker commentators. There's not much here to discuss, I appreciate, but I thought other listeners might now want to keep an ear out for this at the World Championship. Well, yeah, I mean, push the boat out. It, I think it comes from, is it something to do with when we were sort of at war at sea and the night before... Um, they set sail. They may be wrong about this, but I'm sure I heard this. The night before they set sail, they would have a big party, a lavish party, uh, because they're about to set sail. So that I think that's where it comes from, push the boat out. Um, it's it become mangled in terms of usage, but that's true of a lot of phrases, in fairness, uh, Johnny. Uh, but anyway, thank you for your... It's a very niche contribution, and we like that. Uh, Brian McGovern. Uh, my, my question is in relation to your tweet regarding... Martin O'Donnell against Anthony Hamilton. Now, this was re-racked. The first frame was re-racked twice. He says, is there any given rule as to how many times a frame can be re-racked? The answer to that is no. Uh, secondly, what's the longest record for the longest frame in the home nations? I don't know exactly that, but, I mean, we've had a few sort of 70, 80-minute jobs. Uh, but there was a re-rack years ago in the Welsh Open before he became a home nations. We're going back 20-odd years now, 25 years. Dennis Taylor, Gary Wilkinson. Uh, I think it was 58 minutes or something before the re-rack. But uh, Hamilton and, and uh, O'Donnell, they had two re-racks and, and they were long affairs. It was about an hour and 15 minutes before the frame started for the third time. Basically nothing, you know, according to the record books had happened. Uh, Brian Campbell, I'd like to praise Eurosport for their coverage of the Welsh Open, in particular having Rachel Casey presenting from the start of the tournament once again. It was disappointing in recent times when... Uh, Eurosport decided not to have a presenter on from the start of tournaments, as the way she interacts with Alan, Jimmy and Ronnie really enhances my viewing enjoyment. 
One example of her skill this week was when Ronnie and John Higgins were talking about cues. Some presenters like to make it all about them, not Rachel though, as she let the conversation flow between these two greats of the game, which meant the viewers got much more of an insight than if they'd been interrupted. Uh, in other news, I had a chuckle at the Slessie's Moor pun. Well, thank you. Is the influence of the joke section here rubbing off? Here's another collection. Okay, here we go. There's only one here, if we can bear it. I think I did this one myself, actually, Brian, but anyway, we'll give it another airing. Why will Mark have a long snooker career? Because he'll never be past his Selby date. Selby date. You see, it's, be- it's better written down, that. Um, yeah, Rachel's great. I think yeah, most people, most reasonable people agree with that. And um, she's very good at chat, actually, just conversation. Don't feel like interviews. I think players, when they come to the Eurosport studio, feel relaxed enough to say anything. Um, and that's down to her, largely, making that environment. It's kind of always been like that, actually. Andy Goldstein and Colin Murray were similar. Um, and, and Ramsey now as well. You know, it's always been kind of relaxed. It's, it feels... I think when they come in the Eurosport studio, they don't have to be quite on their best behaviour. Maybe with some of the other broadcasters, maybe they feel differently. Gary Burns has written here about an incident in the Jack Lazowski, uh gary Wilson match at the World Show, but I'm not going to read the whole email, Gary, because I think part of it could be uh, possibly libelous, or at least deemed that way by lawyers. <laughs> but you, you, lay, you lay out what happened here. You say, um, the match finally poised, Jack was snooking on the red, so this was in the decider, Snook on the reds behind the green. Jack played an easy swerve and hit the red. Gary, who was standing behind, called a foul and said the green had moved. Jack said he didn't know and the ref said green didn't move. Gary then turns and asks the crowd if they saw the ball move. Put the video up here. Um, I did. I have looked at this. You describe it as gamesmanship and you, you thought Gary's behaviour was disgraceful. The ref should have stepped in. And as I say, you then make a few statements, which I'm not. if you don't mind, I'm not going to read out. But in terms of what happened, I don't think. I certainly don't think it was a foul because... Jack played the, the, the shot at such pace. I think he would have seen the green move. He would have to. You'd have to have seen it. It was very close to the green. So I don't think it was a foul. Gary Wilson first. He said he thought he saw it move. Then he said he thought he heard it move. And Jack sort of said, "Well, which is it then?" Um, yeah, he asked the crowd, which is uh, that. That doesn't wash with me. It's nothing to do with the crowd. If there's been a foul, it's not for them to call it. The referee didn't see it, and quite rightly I think didn't didn't sort of call a foul he didn't see the foul and I don't think it was a foul um, but I think possibly what happened was possibly when Jack played the shot maybe if his cue sort of hit the wood of the table maybe that sound to Gary was actually him hitting the ball uh, maybe so listen I don't know but um, it was a kind of unfortunate way for the match to finish uh, I would agree with that much now we, we the discussion has raged on this podcast about an incident at the 1983 uh, World Championship, Bill Werbeck, David Taylor. Uh, we resolved why David Taylor was sat not by Will Werbeck. He didn't like smoking. But the, the, the small table, that still hasn't been resolved, why that, what I was doing there. But we're now going back even further to 1982. And again, this involves David Taylor because Lee Wall has written in with an incident. He's playing Patsy Fagan and they're on the green uh, in one of the later frames. And uh, Patsy, uh, he misses the green and... As, as the cue ball is sort of coming round, or he didn't, the cue ball is coming round the table, it's about to go in one of the top corner pockets, and he just basically whacks it. And the referee Jim Thorpe says, "Is that a concession?" He says, "No." Uh, David Taylor says nothing, and it was obviously sort of ungentlemanly, I suppose. To me, it looked like a concession, um, but it just it was a foul four. Um, funny enough, Gary Wilson did something similar in the Championship League um, a few years ago with John Higgins, and again he, he said he hadn't conceded. Um, so that was not without precedent, but um, yeah, obviously you know it's, it's not the done thing. It was interesting. David Taylor kind of didn't query it, didn't say anything. Need to say Fagan one ten nine. But uh, thank you for raising that. Will Smith, but not that one. Thank you for the excellent podcast. I've been listening for many years and enjoyed every episode. That can't be true. Surely there have been some rotten ones, Will, let's be honest. But anyway, uh, whilst everyone agrees O'Sullivan and Hendry are the two greatest players of all time, I was recently watching Marco Fu, and it got me thinking, who is the number one and two from Asia? You couldn't argue against Ding being number one, but the number two best Asian player of all time is impossible to decide. Who would you shortlist? Also, when a player is making a one four seven, the commentators always say the opposing player will want them to make a maximum. I've always thought, well, I wouldn't. I'd rather they get all the way to the black and missed. That perhaps says more about me and my awful sadistic personality, but hey-ho, what do you think? Well, on the first point, yeah, Ding obviously, you know, would be regarded as Asia's best player, 14 ranking titles. I think Marco Fu has got to be kind of number two. 
from Hong Kong, three ranking titles. Obviously, there's a number of Chinese players now who have won tournaments. Um, but I think I think Marco probably takes that that. Uh, as you say, it's not something any, I've never seen anyone discuss before, but I would say he'd probably be number two. Uh, in terms of the maximum, we don't know. I mean, it is said, oh yeah, they wanted to make it. We don't know if they do, really. Um, I think you'd like to think they would. You'd like to hope they would, maybe, but we don't know. Um, yeah, we don't know. But the, I think you can see the players. I mean, we saw, obviously, Gary Wilson made one. John Higgins was genuinely happy for him. I think it's nice to be involved in that sometimes. Nice to be part of it. Um, but I'm sure there are players who, <laughs> who, who maybe are like you, Will. Now then, Paul Mastrelli writes, many, uh, many thanks for your continued words of wisdom on your podcast and how fair you are with balancing different points of view on the current snooker issues of the day. Thank you, Paul. I messaged a couple of years ago my very detailed analysis of how the British Open could be better structured in terms of scheduling. At the time, you said that if World Snooker went along with my recommendations, then you would consider me a genius. Alas, this did not happen, and soon after this, World Snooker began to go back to pre-qualifying for those outside the top 16, and then the winners would play an FA Cup format alongside the top 16 at the televised stage. So there you go. Anyway, I'm back with my next message. Meetings with snooker players. I'm from York, and in 2012, I was in my local snooker club, The Castle, in York. I was there for a few with a few friends. We were sitting around a table, and guess who popped in for a good half hour? Only John Parrott. He asked if he wanted to sit with us, and of course we obliged. Uh, most of the conversation was about the snook in York that week and all things Everton. He even paid for a cup of tea, and then within half an hour he was gone. This is probably not counting in your banal section, but I wanted to share a great snooker meeting anyway. Yeah, it's a bit too sort of chummy, that really. Too, too many words were uh, exchanged, but I'm glad that you had a good time. <coughs> Paul continues, I was very pleased to hear that Dave Farrer... He's a fan of the Snooker Podcast. As a family who loves watching Serie A football and hears fantastic commentary on Milan, Juventus, Roma, etc., it's great to hear that he also listens to this podcast and was part of the famous 2020 semi-final commentary for the BBC. Just a shame that these days TNT Sports would rather put him on commentary roster for the French League instead of Italy, which he's done for over 20 years. We miss you not shirking any topic on the Italian game, Dave. Anyway, that got me thinking, which non-Snooker commentator, apart from Dave Farrer, could also fit into snooker commentary with Mr. Stud, Mr. Yates, and of course yourself, Mr. Hendon. Intrigued what your thoughts are on this and any listeners too. Keep up the good work on the pod. Well, thank you, Paul. Well, I mean, Peter Drury years ago did it on ITV. Of course, he's now uh, Sky's top football man and a top, top football commentator in general. Uh, I mean, Shaw Taylor years ago in the 70s commentated on, on snooker. Uh, now, Shaw Taylor's a name not everyone will know, but he, he presented a program called Police Five which was essentially, you know, trying to locate criminals and get them locked up. Uh, so cr- the crime watch of its day, really. But I don't know why he pr- commentated on snooker necessarily, but um, there's been all sorts of people who've done it. Jeff Stelling, actually, did a little bit on Sky. Um, but I think in terms of that league commentator role, I think you do need some sort of background in the sport. I mean, I was a journalist in the sport. Phil Studd was a journalist in the sport. Obviously, Phil Yates the same. So we all kind of had that grounding because it is a kind of journalistic role. It's hard to just sort of come in, you know, even if you're enthusiastic. Having said that, we had um, at the BBC, at the BBC Wales, Andy Stevenson was a sort of new voice to a lot of people, uh, a journalist, a commentator. So there'll be there'll be people emerge, guaranteed. Um, like like you sort of say about players, you know, who are the next top players. People have come through. Um, but it is kind of a, it is a bit specialist snooker because it's it's just it takes so long to play. So I think sometimes if you hear some a new voice, one of the common sort of mistakes they make is they they do a lot of research, which is, which is good, but they get everything they've researched out quickly and it leaves them with nothing <laughs> left to sort of do for the rest of the um, broadcast, and that can be uh, that can be problematic when you when you're in a long match. But I'm sure there'll be uh, I'm sure there'll be you know various voices will emerge in time. Now, Michael Waringer, my question is relating to qualifiers for events and them being held in England. For example, the recently announced event in China, the Jiang Grand Prix, Wilson Nukatov announced that qualifiers will be held in July and the venue stage in August. I think it's fair to assume that the qualifiers will be held in England. If so, anyone who doesn't live in England will have to travel to the qualifiers in the hope of them being included in Round 2 in China. This, of course, doesn't include the first round matches that are held over. It appears to me that Round 1 is played mostly in England, simply to save the UK-based players from having to travel too far in case they don't get through the first round with no prize money. But then again, the £20,000 per season changes all that. 
The players who make it through but then lose could now be financially worse off than those who lost in round one. As any prize money would simply be part of the 20k that they, they didn't win over 20k that, that season. Of course, they have had the chance to earn more by winning, but it seems to me to be a nonsense to favour the UK-based players in this way. Anyone from Europe will have to travel to England, then go home, then out to China if they've won in England. I realise there are cost implications for World Snooker Tour, but I would expect the overall cost to be less for each tournament if they were staged in a similar format to the pre-COVID Home Nations events. Tiered draws would further enhance the events by giving lower-ranked players the experience of travelling to events worldwide with more chance to progress to later stages. Also, the calendar will be less congested without the need for extra weeks for qualifying. Overall, a full event staged in the host city must be better than the UK-centric approach of today. Thank you for your patience if you read through this. Well, I have done, Michael. Yeah, I mean, everything you say makes total sense. It is done for cost reasons, but of course, it costs reasons, as you say, for the British players, for, for the international contingent. Um, you know, it, it can mean, if you're a Chinese player, particularly at that time of the year, as you say, coming back from China to play a qualifier in the UK to go back to China. Um, you know, it's supposed to be the World Snooker Tour. It's never, it's always been like this, always. And there's always been international players who have had to basically base themselves in the UK. Uh, it's never been satisfactory, but equally, it would be a lot of cost, clearly. And, and also, it's not just cost. I think, do we want the whole tour to be going out to all events? Because matches just get lost. Um, you're not watched by anybody. Now you can say it's the same in qualifying. I understand that, but in an eight-table setup, three sessions a day, you know the matches just get sort of lost. Um, so I'm not against sort of limiting the field going out there. I think the ideal field is top 16 and 16 qualifiers, personally, at the venue. But then, you know, as you've already identified, it does mean that non-British players are going to have to qualify somewhere. Um, should the qualifying be? You know, in the country the tournament's played in, you could make that argument definitely. Um, I think there'd be uproar, <laughs> frankly, from the British players in terms of the cost of going out there. But you know, it's supposed to be a world game, isn't it? But I can, I, you know, it's one of those it's kind of no right answer really. Whatever decision you make, someone will be against it for sure. Richard Ratcliffe writes, "I've recently been watching the Welsh Open, a highlight of the season for sure. Clendenin is a wonderful venue, and the crowds have been excellent. It really feels like a special week." It's also been most refreshing to see, with the absence of Trump and, of Trump and O'Sullivan, others take the spotlight. And with Snooker's rich array of characters and personalities, this is a wonderful thing. But the main focus of my email is age, promoted by an intriguing talk during commentary in the Dale Moody match, specifically Dominic Dale potentially becoming the oldest champion ever. Of course, spoiler alert, Dominic did lose in the quarterfinals. Uh, with so many players at the top of the game well into their 40s, this is an increasingly fascinating topic. I decided to investigate through the merits of ranking and non-ranking tournaments and their relevance makes this a touch muddled. Okay, so Snooker's oldest champions. We've got number one, Ray Reardon. He won the non-ranked International Masters in March 1983, aged 50 in five months. Reardon's last ranking victory was in October 82 when he won the Professional Players Tournament. It was two weeks after his 50th birthday. Second is Eddie Charlton, who won Pop Black in 1980, two months after he turned 50. Uh, third, Mark Williams, who recently won a tournament in Macau around Christmas. He was 48 years and nine months. I wouldn't necessarily, I, I, that was more of an exhibition for me. I'm not sure that's counted, uh, Richard as an official tournament. But anyway, Mark had his last ranking victory in early October, winning the British Open. He was 48 years and six months. Ronnie O'Sullivan recently won the Grand Prix, 48 years and one month. John Higgins won last season's Championship League, 47 years and nine months. John's last ranking victory was February 21, he was 45 and nine months. Incidentally, those players occupying sixth to tenth place on this oldest champions lists are Joe Perry, Rob Milkins, Doug Mountjoy, Nigel Bond and Anthony Hamilton. And the oldest players on tour currently, from oldest uh, downwards, we've got Jimmy White, Stephen Hendry, Ken Doggerty, Anthony Hamilton, Rod Lawler, Dominic Dale, Fergal O'Brien, Mark Davis, Andy Hicks. They're all players over 50 or 50 or over. I'd argue it would be a major surprise for any of these to win a tournament, but it's not impossible. But it would certainly be no surprise at all if Williams, O'Sullivan and Higgins, all still elite players, all turning 50 next year, were champions for a good few years to come. There's every chance of Ray Reardon's age record being broken in the next two years. And then over the next 10 years, it'll be fascinating to see who follows. The, old, the following players are all 40-plus, so we've got uh, still on tour. There are a lot of players 40-plus on tour. Joe Perry, Robert Milkin, Stuart Bingham, Graham Dot, Matthew Stevens, Marco Fu, Barry Hawkins, Ali Carter, Brian Day, Stephen Maguire, Dave Gilbert... Neil Robertson, Sean Murphy, Ricky Walden, Mark Selby, Tom Ford. Which of these players will still be the elite in their 50s? It'll be fascinating to watch. Yeah, well, I mean, quite a few of them you could, you could definitely see. And I think, I mean, I, I interviewed Ray Reardon um, last year, and uh, he, he actually said uh, he thinks Ronnie will 
will break his record um, of oldest ranking winner. And as you say, that's not far away now. It uh, could happen in the next couple of years, Richard. Thank you, uh, Richard, for that. Now, last week, I, I ended by saying that Paul Dempsey had emailed in and I would address his, his uh, the point he made um, in this podcast. And I'm sure Paul's listening, thinking, well, come on then. When are you going to get round to it? Well, we're going to end, Paul, by going through some of the points you've made here. There's quite a few of them, but I'll, I'll do my best to address them. He says, I'm ashamed to say I've only recently discovered your podcast, which is now central listening for me, despite enjoying your commentary on, IT, on Eurosport and ITV for many years at this stage. I do have a number of questions for which you may be able to answer. Apologies if you already answered similar ones on, in recent times. Well, the first one, safety success, we did discuss that last week. Uh, for events in China, are the Eurosport commentators actually at the events, or are you commentating remotely? Well, in most sport on TV, it happens in tennis, golf, a lot of sports. Um, to save money, the commentary is not always done at the venue. So a lot of the British tournaments, I mean, I'm in Telford this week. Uh, Telford, obviously, is not as far away as uh, Shanghai, for example, uh, for, for a British broadcaster. So we, we, we're not always at the, uh, the overseas events, no. Question three from Paul. Uh, your Eurospit colleague, Neil Fault, in the latest podcast regarding the replacement of the balls in a snooker situation. If I'm not mistaken, at the Chinese events, they seem to have a system in place that tracks the placement of the balls on the table and therefore makes it easy for the referees to replace balls when multiple balls have been displaced in a snooker situation. Could this system not be adopted for the UK and European events held by World Snooker Tour? I mean, I don't know why it wouldn't be. I suspect cost is probably the, the answer to that, Paul. But, um, you know, I think we've spoken many times about needing a better solution. Uh, number four, this is a query over earpieces which some of the listeners have raised in recent weeks. When at Triple Crown events, do you think spectators shall ever have the option to select which commentary to listen to, i.e. BBC or Eurosport? I'm aware that currently over the, only the BBC commentary is available. However, the, others like me would much rather be able to listen to the Eurosport alternative. I suspect, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that will happen. I suspect it wouldn't be that difficult to arrange, but maybe, um, the, maybe because the BBC, the host broadcasting, maybe it is just agreed that they have the, Sort of rights to that, I don't know. Number five, what are your thoughts on Sean Murphy's view of the use of different cues for different environmental conditions and the deflections incurred? Do you think there's merit in this? Will it catch on with other players on the tour? There may be merit in it, but the problem is, Sean, let's be honest, since sort of adopting that or talking about it, has not had the best of seasons, really. He's lost a lot of first-round matches. So players tend to sort of copy players who are doing well. And at the moment, he's not really. Not to say it won't turn around because he's a great player, but I suspect you know, no, no one else has, has sort of taken up that idea, have they? Um, you know, and, and, and let's be honest, not much has been heard of it since, actually. Uh, number six, given Luca Brussel's in different form this season since winning the Worlds, and given uh, that the start of his title offence is not a longer way, were you surprised Luca declined his invitation to the recent Championship League, given he could play very little snooker between now and the Worlds starting? Um, I guess it, it's sort of going back to an earlier topic. Of course, he doesn't live in the UK. He lives in Belgium. It would be involve, you know, coming over here and, and, and more time away. And I wasn't, I wasn't that surprised he declined it. It's maybe the sort of event he feels he doesn't need to play in because he did win it, the ranking event version last season. Um, I suspect we might see him in it in future, though. I think he kind of he, there were encouraging signs from Brussel. He, Martin O'Donnell played a really good match to beat him in in Clandidno, but he was playing good stuff and. It was nice to see him enjoying it again. And, you know, I think a lot of people were reminded why they like watching him in the first place. Uh, number seven, with uh, the, the Welsh Open, given the absence of the two outstanding performers, well, he's saying, what are your thoughts on potential winners? Well, obviously, that's all gone because <laughs> because uh, we know that Gary Wilson won it. You do actually mention Gary in, in a, quite a long list of players here. But uh, anyway, that's, we know who's won that. Uh Given the two 147s recorded at the Championship League last week, what do you put down the higher frequency of 147s to? Is this due to the standard of play increasing or the increased number of opportunities for the players to play in? It's probably both, Paul, to be honest. There's more tournaments, more matches played, the players are sharper, the players are better than they once were. Um, and, you know, we saw obviously Gary Wilson in that semi-final make one. He could have had one in the first frame. We're going to get the two in the face soon. So that's it, really. Rising standards, more playing opportunities, conditions are good. All, all of the above, really. Uh, number nine, given the success of the German Masters and the healthy crowds that fill their television screens, are you aware of any other ranking events which may or may not be in the pipeline for mainland Europe? This question was also prompted by the recent win for Bushku Revesh in the WSF World Junior Championship. because he's from Hungary. Um, I'm not aware of any more in the pipeline. I know Belgium has been sort of discussed, obviously, in the wake of Brussels' uh, 
victory. I wouldn't be that surprised if Germany got another tournament, but um, there's no firm news on any of that, no. Number 10 from Paul. The best of nine matches at the German Masters was a refreshing change from the shorter best of seven format at the Home Nations events. What would your thoughts be on having the earlier rounds of the Home Nations events at an earlier time, allowing the matches to be minimum best of nine? This could also go some way to filling some of the gaps we currently have in the calendar, particularly in the first half of the season. Um... I, just, I think you mean the early rounds are separate from, so there'd be more rounds played away from the main venue. No, I think best of sevens is fine in the, in, in the home nations. I quite like the fact there's no intervals, you just play the match. Um, there's a lot of matches to get through. Uh, it's nice to have best of nine events, but it's nice to have variety. I, I think there's a bit of a mis, misconception that best of sevens means lots of upsets. I think we actually had an email to the podcast about a year ago. Someone had done research and, and it just wasn't the case. <laughs> it seems like it is, but it kind of kind of isn't. Uh, and finally from Paul, I live in Ireland and often wonder the reason why there's no ranking events south of the border. I've attended numerous Stuka Legends events in Goffs, the home of the Irish Masters previously, and they've always been well-attended events. The venue itself is ideal for snooker, as all seats are relatively close to the table, and all seats have a great view of the table, which helps generate a great atmosphere. Presuming it's for commercial reasons, i.e. sponsorship, etc., this is the case. Would you have any thoughts on this? I'd like to, the, my thoughts are, I'd like to see a tournament in Ireland, but like any tournament, it's got to pay for itself. That's the issue. If they can get a, a, spon- uh, a broadcaster and a sponsor, then great. But Goffs, you know, they, they are going back there, aren't they, for the 900 event soon? Um, but I know for a fact that people have, you know, people lionise it as a playing menu, and I'm sure they're right. But the backstage facilities aren't great. The, the ceiling was always rather low back in the day, and the, it made the table look really long. Um, but as a playing venue, yeah, it was a great. Great for its time, but I think, I personally think, and I've said this before, we need to find new venues, modern venues, rather than harking back to old stuff. Let's find a venue in Dublin, for example. I'm sure there's plenty of places you could play a tournament, and it would be well supported, as you say, because it's very popular in, in Ireland. So, uh, I mean, I certainly hope that we, we get one there, but um, time will tell, I guess. I think that's it for now. Um, thanks to everyone who wrote, has written in, and... Um, it's a big week ahead, the Players' Championship. I guess the question really is, who's going to stop Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump from winning this tournament? And of course, obviously, the one's going to win it. But there's certain players who, you know, who are often associated with winning tournaments who have underperformed. Neil Robertson's not in the event. Karen Wilson's not in the event. Sean Murphy's not in the event. Luca Brassell's not in the event. So none of them are going to win it. Uh, Mark Selby has, has sort of struggled a bit this season. Uh, Mark Williams won that British Open, but you know that was a while ago now. Zhang Anders' success was a while ago now. Obviously, Gary Wilson coming in, you know, will be feeling confident. And you got people like Ding. Obviously, John Higgins has been threatening and threatening and threatening to win something. But you kind of do look at it and you think, well, O'Sullivan and Trump, and let's be honest, particularly O'Sullivan, it's kind of made for him a little bit this event. So let's see. He starts out against Shou Long on Tuesday night. Um, but I think he's quite a heavy favourite actually this week. But we'll see. You know, you never know in this game. Mark Allen obviously is in there, and there's a few other players in there you could see causing trouble. But at the moment, you know, the, the, it's it's sort of different to what we've experienced maybe more re- in more recent years. That the ta- the titles, you know, it's quite a small group of people winning them now, and there's a notable group of people who are not winning them. And it's whether they get back to winning ways before the end of the season. Most most notably, of course, at the World Championship. Just one bit of news. The Championship League, the winners group has been moved uh, to, it's supposed to be March 1st and 2nd, it's been moved to the 12th and 13th. And the reason for that is that um, there's some players involved in that who are also playing in the Riyadh Masters and they're flying out on, on the 2nd. So obviously they can't play that day. So they're moving it to the middle of that week, 12th and 13th. Um, still the, the, the four days after the Players' Championship will go ahead as planned. Uh, but that's it. It's... Um, a very busy time right now, and that's good. That's what we like. And I think next season, you know, looking at the tournaments we were, we're already aware of, it's going to be, I believe we're going to be starting in June uh, with the first event. So, you know, it's going to be a long old season, but that's good. People have said they want to be busy. I always think it's worth calling people's bluffs. If they say they want something, give it them and see what they say then. And speaking of which, uh, if you're in the UK, we've got commentary on the second table uh, this week on ITVX. Michael McMullen and Joe Perry will be... Uh, at the coalface there. They've got a great match tonight, actually, as I record this. Ding Junwee, John Higgins. Uh, but you can watch the second table on that. So every every shot, every ball is covered this week, uh, which uh, makes for a good week. I think this will be a, nice to be back in Telford. We've not been here for a while for a tournament. 
always uh, been sort of well attended, nice area for snooker. So all is good, I think, as we, uh, well, we're now two months away from the Crucible uh, stage of the World Championship getting underway. So it really is proper sort of snooker time. Congratulations again to Gary Wilson. Uh, be interested to see how he goes this week, whether he could win another one. And, uh, well, that's it with members, of course, of the Sports Social Network. They have other podcasts to check out. And, of course, uh, I mentioned Rachel Casey, or someone did earlier this week. She's on the Frame podcast um, with Shabnam this week. Uh, Phil Yates was on that recently as well. Uh, so you can listen to that. Um, and, obviously, the, all the other podcasts as well uh, the, from the usual offices. Speaking of which, I listened to the award-winning, as we must call it now, 147 podcast with uh, Phil Seymour and Sean Murphy. And Sean, every month, every week on that, does a does a rant. And this week it was about hotel rooms that look different on a website to when you actually get there, which is all well and good. But I, I think those two need to tackle the real issue. When the real issue is this, OK, I'm going to leave you with this. The, the, the state now do not disturb signs. Uh, it used to be in a hotel, you had a sign... And on one side it said, do not disturb. On the other side it said, please clean my room. All very clear. Everyone knew where they stood. Now, they have these sort of strange phrases. And you have to try and work out, well, does that mean I'm in the room or out the room? And literally, I stayed in one last year. And, and it, <laughs> it said on one side, living my best life. Now, does that mean, am I living my best life in the hotel room or outside the hotel room? You kind of reason it's probably outside. You would hope so. Um, but it's not clear, and it's quite often not clear to the people who clean the rooms. I've had people come in to clean the rooms because they don't actually... It's not clear from what's written on that bit of card whether it's clean the room or don't clean the room. Why we have to change it, I don't know. Um, I suppose this is just a general example of the decline of civilization. But I think that should be Sean's next rant there. The, the state of do not disturb signs that are not clear whether it's you want to be disturbed or not. Um, an odd way to end, I know, but uh, that's it. You can email the snooker scene podcast at mail.com. That's snooker scene podcast at mail.com. But for now, as we always say, it's goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.